Welcome to the Bagwell Center podcast. This podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity at Kennesaw State University. The Bagwell Center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regard to resource allocation, entrepreneurial activity, economic prosperity, and improved human welfare. Through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures, film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop. Let's get started if we can. So I'd like to start by thanking uh, Kennesaw State University for having me here and all of you for coming. Uh, and I suppose I should thank the participants in recent elections for making this topic great again. Uh, the problem of political ignorance. Uh, it probably isn't that good for the country, but it is good for my book sales. Uh, we had a second edition of this book come out uh, in the middle of the 2016 election. Uh, I thought it might be good to do it during an election year, but little did I know exactly how good the timing actually was. So the issue that I'm going to be focused on in this presentation is what you see on the screen right now, the problem of political choice. Here you have Willow the Golden Retriever, and she's trying to make a choice between the Democrats and the Republicans, symbolized by the elephant and the donkey. And the question is, does she have enough information to make a well-informed decision? And in the case of Willow, we don't really have to worry too much. She knows a great deal about government and politics. But in the case of most voters in most elections, uh, the situation is far more problematic. Uh, so in this presentation, I'll start off briefly by talking about why political ignorance matters in the first place, why we should care about this issue. Then I'll discuss the alarming extent of political ignorance in American society today. And I'll also talk about how most of the ignorance that we observe, it's not the result of stupidity. It's rather the result of essentially rational behavior by individual voters. Though I should emphasize that there's a difference between rational behavior and good behavior. Uh, some scholars argue we don't need to worry about political ignorance because of the fact that even if voters know very little, they can use information shortcuts to get around the problem. Small bits of information that substitute for larger bodies of knowledge that they may not have. I will suggest that in many cases, these shortcuts don't work nearly as well as they're supposed to. And in some situations, they actually make the problem worse uh, rather than better. In the last part of the presentation, I'll talk about some possible strategies for increasing political knowledge and also how uh, we can ameliorate the situation, at least to a large extent, if we make fewer decisions at the ballot box and give people the opportunity to make more choices by voting with their feet. And I'll talk uh, somewhat about exactly what is meant by that. Uh, but first things first, why should we even care about the problem of political ignorance? Some people like the individual currently on the screen. They say that if I want to vote in an ill-informed way, a vote without knowing anything about the issues I'm voting on, that's just my choice. Just like, for instance, uh, a person might uh, eat a diet of eight cheeseburgers every day under the mistaken impression that that's actually good for you, but it's an exercise of their individual 
individual freedom. Uh, and perhaps the same thing is true when people go to the ballot box and are poorly informed. It's their right to do so. They're just exercising their individual choice. Uh, I think John Stuart Mill effectively refuted this argument back in the 19th century when he pointed out that voting is not purely an individual choice. It's the exercise of power over others. When we elect people out of ignorance, uh, the politicians we choose, they don't just govern those who voted for them, they govern the entire society. It's not just a matter of uh, that there might be a bad diet for the people who cast ballots out of ignorance. It's potentially putting the entire society on a diet of harmful and even perhaps dangerous government policies. So therefore, we do have good reason to worry about the problem of political ignorance, even if you believe that in other aspects of our lives, we perhaps have every right to make decisions. Uh, in ignorance, voting is uh, more problematic. So it's worth asking how big a problem is political ignorance really? And this actually is the least controversial part of my book. Overwhelming survey data, both currently and historically, shows that most of the time, uh, most of the public has very little political knowledge. Uh, for example, during the 2014 elections, when what was at stake was control of Congress, only about 38% of the voters even knew which party controlled the House of Representatives, and a similar new number knew which party controlled the Senate. Uh, very difficult to uh, hold the parties accountable for how Congress is doing if you don't even know which party uh, is in control. Similarly, in recent elections and for some time, one of the biggest issues at stake has been the future of the federal budget. We have a very serious and growing fiscal problem uh, in this country, which is going to affect your generation actually even more than mine. Uh, but surveys consistently show that most voters have no idea or very little idea of how the federal government spends its money. They greatly underestimate the percentage of federal spending that goes to big entitlement programs like Medicare and Social Security among the largest items in the federal budget. On the other hand, they massively overestimate by a function of 10 or 20 or more the percentage that goes to foreign aid. That's actually about 1% of the federal budget, but on average voters tend to think it's 10 or 20%. So from the standpoint of the average voter, uh, they're implicitly assuming that if we could cut the foreign aid budget, we could solve our fiscal problems. And whatever you think of foreign aid, this just isn't true. Uh, we could zero out foreign aid tomorrow uh, and we'd be in much the same fiscal situation, a very serious fiscal situation uh, as we are in now. This ignorance extends not just to particular elections uh, or to particular public policy issues. It also applies even to the basic structure of government. For example, a recent Pew Research survey found that only 26% of Americans can even name the three branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. Now, in fairness, uh, this result was a bit worse than what you get when you ask the same question in previous surveys. You Usually you find somewhere between 30 and 35% uh, can name the three branches of government. 26% is a bit low, but even the more optimistic number of 35% uh, still doesn't look all that good given how basic uh, this knowledge is. Uh, and as I'll discuss a little bit more later in the lecture, uh, often voters have little or no idea of which government officials are responsible for which issues, uh, which poses a serious problem for electoral accountability. Uh, 
The problem of political ignorance is not a new one. It's been around for a long time. Uh, the survey data that we have for the entire period for which we've had modern public opinion polling suggests that the voters know very little. But it is also the case that uh, this problem was in some ways made great again or even greater than before during recent elections such as the 2016 election uh, because Trump's campaign during that election was almost a textbook example of the effective exploitation of political ignorance. Uh, so uh, for instance, his campaign first really took off and became famous uh, when he made that now notorious speech when he said that Mexico is not sending us the best people, they're sending us murderers and rapists, uh, they're increasing crime. In actual fact, pretty much every serious study of this subject shows that uh, Mexican immigrants and immigrants generally have much lower crime rates than native-born Americans. They're actually lowering our crime rate. However, survey data from around the 2016 election found that some 50% of Americans do believe that immigrants increased the crime rate. And that was also true of uh, over 70% of Republicans, which helps account for Trump's effective exploitation of this issue, particularly in the Republican primaries. Uh, another issue which Trump exploited very effectively uh, is the issue of international trade. He repeatedly said and still says today that if we have a trade deficit with a country like Mexico or China or with the European Union, that means they're winners and we're losers. They're somehow exploiting us, beating up on us economically. Uh, from the standpoint of almost any economist across the political spectrum, this doesn't make any sense. You might just as easily say that I'm a loser uh, because I have a trade deficit with my local supermarket. Uh, I buy much more stuff from them than they ever buy from me. I've never been able to persuade them to buy any of my books. Uh, and maybe I am a loser, but it's not because I have a trade deficit with the supermarket. Uh, rather, this is just normal economic exchange. And similarly, the fact that we buy more goods from some particular country than they buy from us economically speaking that says nothing about how well we're doing however most of the general public doesn't know that international trade is actually one of the areas where there's the biggest gap between relatively well-informed opinion and that of people who know relatively little and therefore not only Trump but other politicians uh, such as Bernie Sanders a good example on the left uh, they are able to exploit this kind of ignorance uh, for their benefit uh, though I've focused on some examples from Trump's campaign, I should emphasize that what he did uh, differs from what more conventional politicians do much more in degree than in kind. If Trump were to disappear from the scene, which I hope might happen, frankly, uh, but if he were, uh, the problem of political ignorance would still be with us, and more conventional politicians would still be finding ways to exploit it, uh, as they had been doing for many years uh, before Trump came onto the scene. As I mentioned earlier, the ignorance here has actually been relatively stable for many years. It is not correct to say that the current generation is much worse than in the past, though some people do say things like that. Uh, in actuality, today's levels of political knowledge are pretty comparable to what they were 50 or 60 years ago. However, things have gotten worse uh, in at least one noticeable respect, and that is that government is larger and more complicated than it used to be, uh, and therefore the same relatively small amount of knowledge it doesn't go as far as it used to. It's even more outmatched uh, by the amount of uh, issues that the voters have to keep track of. So it's useful to ask, therefore, what is the cause of all this ignorance? Uh, 
Uh, one possibility that is sometimes said is that, well, maybe people are just stupid. Uh, they're too stupid to acquire the necessary information. And there certainly are stupid people out there, but this doesn't seem to be the explanation. In fact, over the last several decades, IQ scores have actually gone up, uh, at least to the extent we can measure such things. The current generation is more intelligent than any past generation that we've had, uh, but yet political knowledge uh, has not gone up as a result. Similarly, it is sometimes said maybe the problem is that the information just isn't available, that you know, the evil media elite have hidden it from us, or the politicians have, or nefarious conspiracies. Uh, I think if you consider the evidence, this explanation isn't very plausible either. To the contrary, thanks to the internet, cable news, and other modern technologies, uh, information about po political issues is more readily available than ever before in human history. So the problem is not that people are stupid or that the information isn't available. It's that people are not willing, for the most part, to use their time and effort to seek out the information uh, and learn it. Uh, and for most people, this it actually turns out to be rational behavior. Uh, imagine you're in the situation that Willow the Golden Retriever was in in our first slide, and you're trying to decide who to vote for in an election, but your only reason to acquire political knowledge is to cast a better informed vote, to choose between the Democrats and the Republicans, for example. That turns out not to be much of an incentive at all. In a presidential election, on average, the chance that any one vote will make a decisive difference to the outcome is about one in 60 million. Uh, in a state or local election, it's somewhat higher, but the odds are still overwhelmingly against you. Now, of course, most people don't know these exact figures, uh, but they do have at least an intuition that there's not much payoff from seeking out political knowledge. So instead, they spend their time doing other things. Uh, they watch football games. They watch their favorite reality TV shows. They attend to their jobs and careers and so forth. And they devote very little time to seeking out political information. And thus, we get these kinds of survey results. Now, of course, some people do learn about uh, some issues, even though they can't affect the outcome. Consider, for instance, sports fans. People who are big sports fans, they know a lot about their favorite sport and their favorite team. It's not because they think they can affect the outcome of games. It's because they enjoy cheering on their favorite team. Often, they enjoy hating the team's rivals. As a Boston Red Sox fan, I enjoy hating the New York Yankees. New York Yankees fans would much less justify probably enjoy hating the Red Sox. Uh, and so people who are like that, they acquire uh, more knowledge about sports, certainly, than the average person does. And similarly, there are the kinds of people who, in the book, I refer to as political fans. They enjoy following politics, arguing about it, and talking about it. Uh, they enjoy cheering on their favorite political team, so to speak, Team Red or Team Blue. Uh, and obviously, uh, they often enjoy hating the opposition as well. Uh, in fact, uh, in recent years, that turns out to be a more powerful motive than liking your own side. People hate the opposing political party, generally speaking uh, in modern society, in modern American society, more than they uh, like their own party. So people like this, on average, they know more about politics, sometimes much more uh, than the average citizen does. Uh, 
Uh, now, I think there isn't necessarily anything wrong with being either a sports fan or a political fan. I'm some of both myself, but there is a problem. When you acquire knowledge not for the purpose of getting at the truth, but for the purpose of enhancing your fan experience, uh, often the way you go about it is very inimical to truth seeking. So think about how very committed sports fans uh, react to new information related to their favorite team. For instance, the referee makes a close call that goes against the team. Often the reaction is the ref must be blind, or he must be corrupt, or he screwed up in some way. On the other hand, if the referee makes a call in favor of your team, well, of course, that was the correct call. How could it have been called otherwise? Uh, there's actual studies on this, if you're interested, showing that fans of one team react very differently to the exactly the same calls uh, than fans of another. Uh, and when you look at political fans, they process information in much the same way as sports fans. Studies repeatedly show that political fans, those most interested in politics, on both the right and the left, uh, they tend to overvalue any information that reinforces their pre-existing views and undervalue or even just entirely dismiss any information that uh, cuts against them. Uh, also, it tends to be the case that political fans uh, usually follow politics primarily or exclusively in media that support their particular side. Uh, so if you're a conservative Republican political fan, uh, there's a good likelihood that you follow politics through Fox News. If you're a liberal Democrat, it might be MSNBC or NPR. Uh, it is even the case that uh, studies reveal that people very interested in politics, they tend to discuss politics only with other people who support the same side. So conservatives with other conservatives liberals with other liberals, uh, and so on. If your goal is to get at the truth, this is highly irrational behavior. As John Stuart Mill pointed out, if you're a real truth seeker, then you would make a special effort to seek out information sources that have viewpoints different from your own. They're the ones who are most likely to give you arguments or evidence that you haven't heard before. On the other hand, however, if your goal is not to get at the truth, but to enhance your fan experience or to enjoy cheering on your favorite team and cheering against the other one, then this is actually perfectly rational. Economist Brian Kaplan calls this sort of pattern rational irrationality. Uh, when your goal in acquiring information is not truth seeking, but something else, uh, it actually makes perfect logical sense to be very biased in your selection of information sources and also in the way that you process the information. So we have a two-level problem of political ignorance. Uh, most voters are just rationally ignorant. They don't, they're not interested in politics. They don't pay much attention to it because the chance that their vote will make a difference is very small. There's a minority, the political fans, who pay much more attention, uh, but they tend to be very biased in the way that they process the information. Now, despite this, some scholars say, don't worry, be happy, be optimistic. Why should we be happy or optimistic? Because of the fact that even if voters are ignorant, they can use information shortcuts uh, to make up for it. Small bits of information that can substitute for larger bodies of knowledge. 
Uh, there are a number of different information shortcuts that scholars have analyzed in their work. Uh, in the book, I go through many different ones. Here, I'll just mention a few. One example might be, for instance, that you can follow an opinion leader. Uh, you yourself might not know much about politics, but you know somebody else or you've heard of somebody else who knows more, so you can let that person guide your decisions and in that way benefit from their knowledge. Uh, one that uh, is especially uh, most strongly supported in the literature is the idea of retrospective voting, uh, symbolized by this famous quote by Ronald Reagan in the 1980 election. Reagan said, if you want to figure out who to vote for in this election, all you got to do is ask, are you better off than you were four years ago? If the answer is yes, then you should vote to reelect the incumbent president so he can continue his good policies. If the answer is no, and Reagan, who was the challenger in this election, he knew that most people thought the answer was no. That's why he asked the question in the first place. Uh, if the answer is no, then you should vote to throw the bums out. Uh, and then a different set of bums can come in to replace them. But the new bums will know that if they don't improve things, if the situation continues to deteriorate, uh, then they too might be thrown out in their, in their turn. And so in this way, the idea is that retrospective voting can create good incentives for politicians, even if the voters know very little, so long as the voters will vote out the incumbents when things are going badly uh, and reward them when things are going well, then the uh, political incumbents will have incentives to adopt good policies. Uh, I think there's something to this idea, uh, and sometimes it works. However, it also highlights the severe limitations of information shortcuts. In order to be a good retrospective voter, you need to be able to know what issues the incumbent politicians actually have control over. If you don't know this, then you will end up rewarding and punishing them for things that they don't control. And that is exactly what we, in fact, do end up doing in most elections. For example, the biggest determinant uh, of most elections is the, whether the economy was improving or getting worse uh, in just a year or two right before the election, even though most economists will tell you that incumbent politicians have very little control over short-term economic trends. Uh, their policies will often have bigger effects on the long-term growth of the economy, uh, but they have very little control over whether, for instance, there will be a recession this year uh, as opposed to next year. And this is far from the only example uh, where voters reward and punish incumbents for things that they didn't cause. Uh, for example, in farm states, if there is a drought that reduces agricultural production, the governor is less likely to be reelected, even though obviously he or she has no control over the weather. Uh, it is even the case that if a local sports team wins a championship, uh, then that's great news for the mayor. He or she is more likely to be reelected, even though in most cases, uh, the mayor didn't play in the game, didn't coach, didn't suggest any plays, but nonetheless, they reaped the benefit. On the other hand, in coastal areas, if there are shark attacks, if Jaws surfaces and takes a bite out of someone, that's not so, so good news for local government leaders, even though most of the time they have very little control uh, over the sharks. Uh, and there are many other uh, examples like this. Another problem with retrospective voting and also with other information shortcuts is that the advocates of these theories implicitly assume that people choose shortcuts based on the ability to get at the truth, uh, that they choose the shortcut uh, that has the biggest value in trying to 
actually figure out what's going on. But often people choose shortcuts or use them uh, based on these other kinds of motives, the rational irrationality that I mentioned before. So for instance, with retrospective voting, when there is a Democrat in the White House, Republicans tend to greatly overestimate the rate of inflation on employment. They tend to assume well, if there's a Democrat in the White House, things must be going badly. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Democratic voters have the opposite kind of bias. They overestimate how well things are going if there's a Democrat in the White House and underestimate if there's a uh, Republican. Similarly, with other information shortcuts, often when people choose opinion leaders, for instance, they don't choose those who have the best track records of having great insight into public policy and its effect. Rather, they choose those who uh, have the greatest ability to entertain and also to reinforce uh, their pre-existing views. Think about somebody like Tucker Carlson on Fox News or his equivalents on the left. Uh, people don't watch Carlson or others like him uh, because they have great knowledge and insight into public policy. They watch them uh, because they're entertaining and they reaffirm the views of the audience. They make the audience feel good about itself uh, and therefore they have a big audience even though they often provide very little insight. In fact, they often actually distort what is going on rather than provide useful information. Uh, so in looking at shortcuts, there's once again a two-level problem. Often in order to use the shortcut effectively, you need some pre-existing knowledge, uh, which most voters do not have. For instance, you need to know which issues the particular incumbent actually has control over. And in addition, uh, often the shortcuts are not chosen for their truth value. They're chosen based on these other kinds of considerations uh, that fall under the general category of rational irrationality. So it is not my view that shortcuts never work. They can be useful in some circumstances. But overall, they don't work nearly as well as is claimed. And in some instances, they actually make things worse, uh, as when people choose bad opinion leaders or when people reward and punish and politicians for things that they didn't actually cause while ignoring those things that uh, the politicians do have more control over. Uh, so what can be done about this situation? Uh, in chapter seven of my book, I discuss a number of different possible uh, reforms that have been suggested. Here I'll just talk about a few. The most obvious one, the one that's most often advanced, is to reform the education system. Use public education to ensure that people know a lot about politics. Then when they graduate from high school or perhaps from college, uh, they will be well-informed voters. Uh, and this has been advocated really for centuries as a possible solution to the problem of political ignorance. Uh, and I'm all in favor of improving education, uh, but it turns out this is much harder to do uh, than is often thought. Today, the average American has several years more formal education than the average American back in 1960, yet levels of political knowledge uh, have remained roughly stagnant. So more education doesn't necessarily translate to more knowledge. You might say, well, that's just because they're teaching the wrong things. If they taught the right kind of stuff, uh, then people would graduate from high school or college and be really well informed. Uh, and that may be true to some extent, but there's a problem. How do we incentivize real world politicians to actually do this? Uh, the real world politicians, of course, were elected by a largely ignorant electorate. Why would they want to increase, uh, remove the ignorance which helped them get into power in the first place? 
Uh, maybe they would do it if the voters carefully monitored the public education system uh, and, re and rewarded them for using it to increase political knowledge. But of course, if the voters had that much knowledge of public policy, uh, then we wouldn't have a problem of political ignorance to begin with. Moreover, historically, Often politicians, when they use the public education system, far from uh, trying to use it to inform people about politics, they have often historically used it to indoctrinate people into preferred views of either the political majority or of powerful interest groups. There's a long history of this in public education systems, both in the United States and also uh, in Europe and elsewhere uh, as well. Finally, even if we did use education to increase people's political knowledge, uh, there's a problem. It may be that when you graduate from high school, you're really well informed about the political issues that exist at the time, but hopefully you will be living and voting for many years after that, 50, 60, 70 years. Uh, and over time, new issues will arise. You will forget some of what you learned. So unless they make you report for re-education once every few years uh, or require you to pass a test once every few years, gradually your knowledge will atrophy. Uh, and even if you were an informed voter at the age of 18, uh, you might not be such at the age of 28 or 38 uh, or 48 and so forth. Another very common prescription uh, for addressing political ignorance is to try to fix the media. Uh, often people will blame the media. They will say the problem is that the media focuses on superficial fluff. Uh, they focus on stories about celebrities or stories about campaigns and the like. And they don't give us enough hard news. Uh, they don't tell us enough, for example, about the details uh, of Beto O'Rourke's and other candidates' uh, health care plans. Instead, they focus on Beto O'Rourke's picture on a magazine cover and whether he looks cool or not and other things of this sort. Uh, so if only the media covered the right things, uh, then people would know more about politics. Uh, and I think there's certainly room uh, to criticize the media on this and on other things. However, it's unlikely that this is the real cause of the problem. The media and other information sources do, in fact, provide a lot of data about basic political and economic issues, yet people still don't consume them. Uh, and right now, there already is media which focuses specifically on hard news, gives you detailed evidence and information on political issues. Check out C-SPAN, for example. They broadcast this sort of thing 24 hours a day. But there's a reason why C-SPAN has far, far lower ratings than more entertaining kinds of news programs that are more superficial. It's because people like the more entertaining ones. They want to be entertained. They don't want to listen to uh, details about healthcare plans and tax plans uh, and the like. So to the extent that the media focuses on superficial matters, it is in large part because they're responding to demand. They're responding to what people want to see. If they showed more hard news, their ratings would probably fall, uh, and people would you know, turn the channel and watch something else. Uh, so the problems of the media are more a symptom of the issue of political ignorance than the cause of it. Uh, finally, uh, there is an idea which is not as commonly advanced, but one that I think deserves exploration. And that is that if the problem is that voters don't have enough incentive to be informed, why not just give them an incentive? Why not just simply pay them to increase their political knowledge? For example, the government or a private organization could establish a political knowledge test 
One of my colleagues proposes to call it the Civic Achievement Test, uh, my, uh, borrowing from the name of the SAT. And if you score well on this test, then you get a, you get a, you get a payout of money, $500, $1,000, whatever amount it might take to uh, incentivize people to do well on this test. And if people learn this information, then they can use it uh, when they uh, vote at the polls. And in principle, we could greatly increase political knowledge this way. Uh, I think this idea deserves greater consideration, uh, but I'm not fully willing to actually endorse it at this point uh, because there's a serious problem. Uh, do we trust the government or anybody to determine what should be on the test and what the right answers should be? There's lots of ways that it could easily be skewed uh, to support one side of the political spectrum or another. So while this idea, I think, deserves discussion, it's unlikely to be the solution to our problems uh, in the near future. Uh, so what can we do that's more promising? Uh, I think a good direction is to try to ensure that we make more decisions by voting with our feet and fewer at the ballot box. What is voting with your feet? Uh, well, up on the screen is a classic example of it. Immigrants coming to the United States from Europe in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, these people have figured out the conditions for them are better in the United States uh, than in the countries they came from, and therefore, they voted with their feet to take advantage of it. Similarly, you can vote with your feet Within a single country, for instance, you can choose what state to live in or what city or town to live in based on the government policies that they have there, tax policy, criminal justice policy, education policy, uh, and so on. And you can also vote with your feet in the private sector. Uh, you can choose what school you're going to go to. You can choose uh, what church or synagogue or mosque you go to. Uh, you can choose to join various groups, buy various products, and so forth. In the private sector especially, often you can vote with your feet without actually physically moving. Uh, the defining characteristic of voting with your feet is not necessarily actual physical movement, but that you make a choice as an individual uh, that makes a difference. Uh, that instead of being one vote out of a million or a hundred million, you as an individual can choose what product you're going to buy, where you're going to live, uh, and so forth. Or at the very least, uh, you're part of a small group of people that's making a choice, such as a family, uh, for example. Now, why would this be any better than voting at the ballot box from the standpoint of information? After all, in both cases, you have to acquire information and you have to carefully think about it uh, and evaluate it. Uh, the answer is that the incentives are completely different. If you're like most people, you probably spent more time seeking out information the last time you decided what iPhone to buy uh, or what car to buy than the last time you decided who to vote for for president or for any other political office. Uh, now, why is that? I doubt it's because you think that uh, the president deal is the presidency is less important than your iPhone, or that the president deals with less complicated issues uh, than the iPhone does. Rather, I think it's because that when you select an iPhone, you know that the one that you select is actually going to be the one that you get, and it will make a difference to the kind of experience that you have. But when you flip on the iPhone and you go out on the internet and you see the president, the chances that you can affect who that is are infinitesimally small, and therefore, quite understandably, you devote much less time and effort 
to that decision. And of course, the same applies to decisions about where you're going to live, where you're going to go to school, uh, and so forth. People generally seek out more information when they make those choices uh, than when they make choices uh, at the ballot box. This affects not just your incentive to seek out information, but your incentive to be at least relatively objective in evaluating it. There is less rationally rationality going on. Uh, think about this. Uh, it, uh, if you're like most people, you may have had the, exp the experience or heard the saying that you're not supposed to argue about politics with people in mixed company. If you go to a party uh, and you start explaining to people there why their political views are wrong, even if you have devastatingly powerful arguments which totally obliterate whatever it is that they believed before, they probably won't thank you for correcting your mistakes, uh, for correcting their mistakes. Uh, indeed, uh, they might get very annoyed and angry. If you want to be a popular person who gets invited to all the cool parties, you don't want to develop a reputation for starting political arguments. Believe me, I know from painful personal experience, this is not the way to become popular. On the other hand, if you go to that same party and talk to those same people about how they might be able to make a better foot voting decision, what iPhone to buy, where they should live to take advantage of the best school systems, uh, what professional or school they should choose, they're probably going to be much more open-minded. Uh, why the difference? It's because when you give people information that's relevant to a foot voting decision, that's news that you can use. On the other hand, uh, when you give them information that's uh, about a ballot box voting decision, that's information that has only an infinitesimal likelihood uh, of actually making a difference. What are the implications of this? Uh, given that people are more informed when they vote with their feet, uh, that's a good reason to support greater political decentralization. Uh, when more choices or more issues are controlled by lower levels of government, you can vote with your feet uh, more often on more issues. Similarly, it strengthens the case for increasing the role of the private sector. When uh, issues are handled by the private sector rather than by government, uh, then that also expands your ability to vote with your feet. In my book, I also discuss how it strengthens the case for stronger judicial review, like in this situation, if judges strike down more laws, more issues might be available to the private sector, or if there are federal laws, if there are limitations in the power of the federal government, uh, then uh, it is the case that more issues are handled at the state or local level. Now, I readily admit that this doesn't mean we should have the maximum possible decentralization or the maximum possible limitation of government power. There are lots of factors to be taken into account other than political ignorance. Uh, so if you read my book, even if you agree with everything I say there, you may not want as much decentralization and limitation of government power as I would. Uh, but you probably will want more than you yourself would support if you thought that you lived in a world where political ignorance was not a serious problem. So, and with this, one possible way to increase political knowledge is to have retrieverocracy. When the electorate is primarily made up of golden retrievers, uh, they tend to be more informed and more rational than humans. But until we can get to retrieverocracy, I hope you will consider the possibility that we can improve the situation by empowering people to vote with their feet. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at coles.kennesaw.edu econop.